All right, let's turn to 1 John chapter 4. Okay, now we're going to back up a couple verses just to get us rolling. We're going to look at verses 9 through 12, but we're going to read starting in verse 7. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another. Remember the song? For love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knoweth God. Anyway, verse 8, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And this is where we'll pick it up starting today. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And we'll talk about what that word means. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another... God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up this time in Your Word. Pray that You'd help us to cover what we need to cover today, that You would anoint the teaching of Your Word, and You would plant Your Word deep within our hearts, that it would have a transformative effect on us, Father, in our hearts, our minds, all of who we are. Transform us, we pray, by the renewing of our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 9, in this, the love of God was manifested toward us. Or, could also be translated, this is how God showed His love among us. And so, God has given us a very literal, physical, graphic illustration of what His love looks like. And here it is. God has sent His only begotten Son into the world. This is the manifestation. Jesus is the human, earthly manifestation of God's love. God sent His Son into the world for one specific purpose, to die on the cross for our sins. John 12, 27. Jesus is praying, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And then one translation inserts the word no here. No! But for this very purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus knew, he understood his purpose. You want to talk about the purpose-driven life? I don't really want to talk about that, tell you the truth. Because that's not biblical, it's not scriptural. That's Rick Warren's theology. But here's God's theology. You want to talk about the purpose-driven life it was Jesus whose purpose was to come into this world and die on the cross for our sins. For this very purpose. And there he is in the Garden of Eden, wrestling, that inner turmoil, knowing what he must do. Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No. For this very purpose I came to this hour. And then John fifteen thirteen, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And notice throughout John's first epistle here, he's been referring to his readers as beloved or dear friends. Jesus took our relationship with God to the next level, but it really goes back to Abraham was called the friend of God. And then Jesus says in John chapter 15, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Greater love has no one than this, 
that he laid down his life for his friends. In this the love of God was manifested toward us. God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. He died that we might live. This is what John's been talking about in this passage, agape love, the highest form of love, unconditional love, God's love, that we might live through him. And by the way, folks, when the Bible talks about living, it's not just biological function. In fact, that's pretty insignificant in the overall scheme of things because we're created in God's image. God is a spirit. Our spirit within us is the part of us that is eternal. Now, we will also receive an eternal, glorified, immortal, imperishable, incorruptible body at the resurrection. But we are already in possession of an eternal spirit. And when John talks about us living through Christ, the fact of the matter is we can't live without Christ. You can be born into this world, you can have biological function, but apart from Christ there is no life. Because life, that abundant life that Jesus talks about in John 10.10, has to do with that eternal part of who we are, the spirit. One thing about getting older and experiencing the normal natural deterioration of the physical body, I'm more and more aware every day that this is merely a vehicle. This is not me, this is my vehicle. The real me is the inner me, the spirit created in the image of God. And just like any vehicle, these vehicles wear out. But the good news is we will live forever because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Amen. Verse 10. In this is love. Agape. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, since God is love, we learned that in verse 8. God is love. He is the very essence, the very epitome, the very source. He is the origin and the source. This is so important. He is the origin and the source of all pure, holy, righteous, perfect love. It begins with Him, not us. You know, traditionally, historically, there's been this modus operandi regarding men and women. And this is going back to when we only had men and women. And this is going back to when normally men only married women and women only married men. Traditionally, the man was the one who would pursue the woman, the initiator, the instigator, and the woman was the respondent. And I, even when I was a teenager, which was only about a half a century ago, <laughs> moms didn't like it when girls called boys. The boy was supposed to call the girl. If the girl called the boy, that means she was fast and loose. Right? Now everything's changed. You better not be calling me, sucker, till I call you. The man now has to be the passive one. 
and wait until he's called upon, you see. Am I getting too politically incorrect for you here? Okay. My point is this. God is the initiator. We are called in the Bible the bride of Christ, right? God's the initiator. He reached out to us by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die on the cross for our sins. There are a lot of people out there who say, well, if God wants me, He knows where I am. No, it doesn't work that way. He's already called upon you. 2,000 years ago, He sent His Son into this world, and then He gave us the New Testament to introduce us completely and thoroughly to who His Son is. God's already initiated. It's time for us to respond. We're to be the respondents. Jesus is the groom, and we are the bride. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. In fact, 1 John 4, 19, later in this same chapter, John says, we love Him because He first loved us. He's the initiator. We're the respondents. And sent his son to be the propitiation, or another translation says, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. As we read earlier, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Webster's 1828 Dictionary. Here's the definition of propitiation. The act of appeasing wrath. God's wrath. Because... God cannot allow sin in His presence. He is perfect, righteous, holy, just. He, sin cannot dwell in His presence. And the result of unchecked sin, wickedness, is God's wrath. Just like in the days of Noah, just like it will be in these last days during the tribulation, the outpouring of God's wrath on a wicked, unbelieving world. Propitiation is the act of appeasing that wrath and conciliating the favor of of an offended person. Who's offended? God. Did you know God's the only one who has a right to be offended? Did you know that? And yet people get offended all the time. Really? Really? You know what? You're just as offensive as the person that offended you. We're all offensive because we're all vile, wretched sinners in need of a Savior. The only one who really has a right to get offended is God. And he is offended by our sin, but he has made propitiation through the blood of Christ. In theology, the atonement or atoning sacrifice offered to God to assuage his wrath and render him propitious to sinners. Christ is the propitiation for the sins of men. And that's a hard word to say. I struggle with it personally. Okay, so it's connected to atonement. So let me read you the definition of atonement. Satisfaction... So Mick Jagger needs atonement because he can't get no satisfaction. But if he would get atonement, he would be satisfied. Satisfaction or reparation. Martha, who's Mick Jagger? <laughs> okay. <laughs> satisfaction or reparation for a wrong or injury. Amends. Have you ever talked about making amends with someone? That's atonement. Making amends with God. And the only way that can happen is through the blood of Christ. Theolo theology, the doctrine concerning the reconciliation of God and humankind, especially as accomplished through the life, 
suffering, and death of Christ. So there's your propitiation and your atonement. Now, in case you haven't noticed, worship is sacrifice. The title of this message last week and today, Love is a Sacrifice, Parts 1 and 2. Just as worship is not worship without sacrifice, Psalms 51:17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. As it talks about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, a living sacrifice. Worship is sacrifice. You're giving of yourself. If it doesn't cost you something, either monetarily, emotionally, physically, spiritually, then it's not really worship. It's a sacrifice, especially in today's world, to give up your Sunday morning to go to church. A lot, most people don't do that. They go to the mountains. They go boating. They go fishing. They go four-wheeling. Anything and everything, they go to Flying Star, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago. Drive around town and see which parking lots are full. There's a lot of them that aren't churches. So, on the one hand... I don't think we should pat ourselves on the back for just doing what we should do. But at the same time, understand it is commendable that you make a sacrifice to show up on Sunday morning, to give up that little space of time. It's only an hour and a half, two hours. But it's still, it means something. It's meaningful. It's a sacrifice to drive here, to spend money on your gas and so forth. That's just one of many examples of how we make sacrifices in order to worship God. But worship, true worship, involves sacrifice. We know the, in the Old Testament there was an entire sacrificial system. And then Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice. In the same way that worship is not worship without sacrifice, and these guys drove all the way from California and they're only playing two places. Friday night, was it? Calvary Chapel Southwest, on the southwest side of town, and then here this morning with us, and then they're driving 12 hours all the way back to California. That's a sacrifice. Just as worship is not worship without sacrifice, love is not love. Agape is not agape without sacrifice. Matthew twenty two thirty seven 37 through 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we have two elements here in Matthew twenty two thirty seven 37 through 39. One, he's speaking of others. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a sacrifice, isn't it? The normal, natural, carnal, human way would be to love yourself more, right? And of course, the popular idioms within the modern world are, what about my needs, right? It is a very much a self-centered world we live in today. Me first. There's that other one, do unto others before they do unto you. You've heard that one? There's a bunch of them out there. Philippians 2.3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Well, just imagine if 
believers relate, behave like that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. What a wonderful world it would be. Remember that song? Who is this guy? What century is he from? Okay. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. What does the world tell you? You got to build up your self-esteem. You got to learn to love yourself before you can love anybody else. That's a bunch of hogwash. The whole problem is we all love ourselves too much. The Bible says just the opposite. Lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others. Listen to this. Here's, here's what I'm talking about with love as a sacrifice. Let each esteem others better than himself. How many people really do that? Even in the church, let's be honest. We're, we're living in a world today where it's come down to literal physical violence. If you don't go with the flow, if you don't buy into the mentality of the masses, if you dare to be different, if you dare to stand up for what you believe in, there's a good chance, depending on where you go and what you're doing, you could get beat up for it. I wouldn't call that esteeming others better than yourself, would you? The attitude today, particularly with that liberal leftist, anti-God, anti-Christian group is, I'm better than you unless you agree with me. That's so anti-God and unbiblical, it's not even funny. So there's sacrifice, agape, God's unconditional love which He has imparted to us and he expects us to exemplify in our own lives involves sacrifice. It involves putting the other person first. Even if you don't think they're as good as you are, which that's a problem in and of itself. Here it is. Romans 12.1 Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now some people kind of try to give themselves a pass or what have you, or just say, well, I did my share, I put money in the plate or whatever. I and that's one way of worshiping God is to give. But then they give no thought to the idea that, wait a minute, the ultimate sacrifice is not money, it's me, it's myself. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. But I don't have time for that. I'm too busy. I have too much on my plate to literally give myself over to God. It's just like we read in Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Matthew 19, 29. Jesus says, everyone who has left houses. Now why would you do that? Our security is in our homes and so forth, right? Chris and Maria did that about... 11, 12 years ago when they gave up everything and moved to Honduras for 10 years. Many other missionaries and people have done the same. And I'm reluctant to say this, but I just want to use it as an example. I'm not great, I'm not special, but when my wife and I felt that we were called here to Albuquerque in 1986, we had just gotten a small home in Aurora, Colorado. We had two little children, like four and three, or even younger maybe. And when we got that call, we said, we got to go. And we sold the house back to the guy we bought it from for 
We lost several thousand dollars. But it didn't matter because we wanted to be where God wanted us to be. Please understand, I'm not bragging. I'm just trying to give you... That's an example that comes to mind because we've lived it. We've done it. That doesn't make us awesome or special or anything else. It's just an example of what we can do when God calls us to do something. We present ourselves as a living sacrifice, whatever that means, whatever that involves. And you know what? God has blessed us abundantly. We didn't lose anything in that deal by simply obeying God. Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters. Again, I grew up in Arizona. We moved to Southern California. Family got dispersed. Uh, my sister's in Oregon. My brother's in Nevada. I rarely ever see them. I love them. But my first priority was to go where God wanted me to be. But I see people all the time who are hindered and tied down. Some people can't go anywhere without their biological family. I mean, we've had people that said, well, you know, I love the church, I love being here, but my daughter, my son, this person wants to go to this church, so I'm going to go with them. What if God's called you here? In many cases, it just doesn't seem to matter to people. Jesus said, you've got to love me more than your houses, your land, your brothers, your sisters, your father, your mother, or wife. See, these guys have to spend some time away from their families to do what God's called them to do. They don't neglect their families by any means. But it does require some separation. Sometimes the apostles, in their three years of training under Jesus, spent very little time with their families. That wouldn't even fly in today's world. I'm not sure Jesus could get 12 apostles today. Because 11 out of the 12 would say, you know what, my wife ain't going to go for this. And I'm not putting you ladies down. It's just that we've been brainwashed by a modern, lukewarm, watered-down Christianity. And all this, these seminars and conferences telling us how we're supposed to behave towards one another. When if you want to know how to behave towards your husband or your wife, you need to read the Bible. And it's all about sacrifice. If you love God, if your husband or your wife loves God, just like Renato got up here and said, my wife understands that the, the deepest needs of my heart are not met by her, they're met by God. And by the same token, he said, I understand the deepest needs of my wife. Did I get that? Anyway, they both said that about each other. Both of them understand that your spouse, your husband or your wife can't be your all in all. It has to be God. And if it is God, then you will have the ability to let your spouse be who they are in Christ and do what God has called them to do. Not holding them back. It's not what about my needs. It's about what does God want and if you're married, that means what does God want for me and what does God want for my spouse? And our goal should be to cooperate with God. Everyone who's left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, or wife, or children, or lands, 
And boy, my, God taught me a very graphic example of this in my life. And I've shared my testimony before, but I'll just reiterate it very quickly. Two months before my 12th birthday, my father died of leukemia. Two months before my 17th birthday, my mother died of leukemia. So as a junior in high school at 17 years of age, I was an orphan. I moved in with my aunt and uncle. But I was almost an adult by then, had one more year to go. And so when God called me into the ministry at the ripe old age of 18, I didn't have any parents. I had one father, God, and I just went for it. And you know what? I was never mad at God about that. Of course, I missed them. I was sad. I still do to this day. But I had a very strong sense that God was so determined to steer me in the direction He wanted me to go that He was removing any and every obstacle that would prevent me from going in that direction. And sadly, unfortunately, that meant removing my parents from the equation. So I didn't have to deal with this part. Father or mother. Everyone who's left father or mother, no, God took them away from me. And I had to lean solely upon Him. I mean, I'm not recommending that for everyone. But in my case, it really did the trick, I'll tell you. Okay, for my namesake. So it's not just a matter, you know, joining the Peace Corps, you know, uh, volunteering with Planned Parenthood. I know, that's gross, right? But doing some kind of a social justice thing, you know, so you can feel good about yourself. No, 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 no. For my name's sake. You're doing it for God. You're doing it for Jesus. For His name's sake. Anyone who gives up any of these things, any or all of them, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. It's a double dip. He promises a hundredfold return. Now, we don't know what that may look like for each person in their lives. I, I think God's blessed me a hundredfold for what I've given up in the past to follow Him and to serve Him. But if that, that could be relationships, you know, spiritual mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, and so forth. It could be material things. My, we've been blessed with a nice house to live in. God's blessed us in many ways. A hundredfold. But the best part, the most important part, you will inherit eternal life. Does that mean you're saved by good works? No. But it means that the truest indicator that you've truly been born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, is that you're willing to let go of anything and everything to follow Him. Remember the rich young ruler? Lord, what must I do? Jesus said, Sell all you have, give it to the poor, then come and follow me. Now, is that a universal rule for everybody? No. But Jesus knew that man's heart, and he knew that in his case, unless he was willing to let go of all that material wealth, he would never be able to be a true follower of Christ. What does the Bible say? The man went away sad. He didn't do it. He didn't do what Jesus called upon him to do. That meant his wealth was more important to him than following Christ. It could be money. It could be people. It could be vocations. What if you were the CEO of a corporation and God called you to lay that aside and go on the mission field or lay that aside and become a counselor? Who knows what? Would you be willing to give up that position? 
Would you be willing to give up those relationships that might be hindering you from following God? That's the ultimate test. That means worship and love are both a sacrifice. To the degree that you're willing to sacrifice whatever it is that's between you and God, that's the degree to which you will be able to truly love God and love others. And that's what this is about. That's what John's talking to us about. God set the example. He showed us what real love really looks like. And now we're called upon to exhibit that love to one another. Our love, devotion, and dedication to God, to Jesus, should take absolute preeminence over our love for everyone and everything else, including and especially ourselves. I've, give, I've given you this a number of times, but you take the word joy. The first letter J stands for Jesus. The O stands for others. And the Y stands for you. Last. Jesus first, others second, you, sorry, last. Okay, verse 11. Beloved. There it is again, dear ones. Beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If or since, one translation says, since God so loved us, so loved us how? How did he love us? John, 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John 3.16, the classic verse, For God so loved the world, how? That he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then John 15.13, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. If God so loved us like this, the ultimate, greater love has no one than this, they lay down his life for his friends, then John says, since that's what God did, we also ought to love one another. It's like that um, parable of the servants that owed his master like millions of dollars. Remember? The master's going to throw him into jail until he pays it back, which is kind of like that old... In England, they used to have those prisons for poor people who are in debt. But how do you ever pay the debt if you're in prison? Right? And so the guy begs his master, Oh, master, please, please don't put me in prison. I'll pay you back every cent. And the master knew he could never do that. And by the way, that's a definition of forgiveness, paying the other person's debt that they could never pay on their own. The master forgives him of the debt. And then he goes out and finds some guy that owes him like five bucks. I'm going to put you in jail till you pay back every penny. Rah! That's the exact opposite of what John's talking about here. When you think about how much God has forgiven you of, the great sacrifice that he's made on your behalf, how dare we go out and hold other people accountable for the debts we believe they owe us? The debt that we have is to forgive one another. That's the obligation we have. We also ought to love one another in light of and in view of the amazing, incredible love God has bestowed on us. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. It's such an astoundingly high value He's placed upon us. Then John's saying we owe it to one another to love as God has loved us. How? John 13, 34, Jesus says a new commandment. 
I give to you, that you love one another. Here's, here's the biggie. As I have loved you, love is sacrifice, that you also love one another. How did Jesus love us? He denied himself, took up his cross, died on the cross, laid down his life. So now Jesus says, you have to love one another as I have loved you, laying down our lives for one another. Not necessarily literally, although that may be true in some cases, but it means, again, putting others before yourself. And you know what? When we do that, if we do that regularly, wholeheartedly, sincerely, deeming others better than ourselves, putting others first, we won't ever get offended, which we're not supposed to do. What should we be? We should be offended by sin. We should be offended by the devil. He's very offensive. But we should not be offended by one another. To demean or to devalue one another. And you know, when I say that, you think, oh, I don't do that. I don't demean others. I don't devalue them. Well, do you gossip? Do you backbite? Are you divisive? We've had to deal with some of that stuff not too long ago. That's demeaning and devaluing one another is what it is. You have such a strong need to be right. You don't care who you hurt. Because I'm right and I know it. If they can't handle the truth, that's their problem. That's almost word for word what one person said a few months back. I was defending some of the people in the church against their attacks. And they said, well, it's not my problem, it's their problem. They can't handle the truth. Well, that was his truth. The only truth I'm interested in is God's truth. Not to digress. To demean or devalue one another is to demean and devalue the God who paid the highest possible price for our atonement. When you're demeaning or devaluing one of God's people, then you're demeaning and devaluing God because He paid that high price for you and for me. And who are you to say that that other person wasn't worth it? Get it? Verse 12. We might make it. No one has seen God at any time. You might think, well, what about Jesus? We'll talk about that in a moment. But God the Father, God who is spirit, no one's ever seen God at any time. The one who came the closest was Moses. Exodus 33, 22 and 23. So it shall be while my glory passes by, said God, that I will put you, Moses, in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So anyone who claims to have seen God is a deceiver and not to be believed. And there have been those that have made that claim. They were either on LSD or magic mushrooms or something like that. Now, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, who is that? Jesus has made him known. Notice what's so important about this verse. This is yet another reference to Jesus as God. For all those who say Jesus never claimed to be God, that's something Christians made up. Really? Here in John 1, Jesus is referred to God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side. How can that be? If the Father's God, 
How could Jesus be God? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. If you could figure that out and understand it, you would be God. Doesn't make it any less true. Yet another reference to Jesus as God. Okay, John 6, 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And so what an awesome thing that the very Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, who lived eternally in heaven with God, has come to earth as an eyewitness that God is real, God is alive, and I'm the very embodiment of the living God, the incarnation, God in the flesh. John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So no one has seen God, the Spirit, who's on the throne in heaven, but many have seen God the Son, if you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen the Father. No one has seen God at any time. If we, here's the point that John's trying to make. If we love one another, God abides or lives in us. This is not some hippie, flower power, new age, warm, fuzzy, all you need is love statement that John is making here. I mean, all you need is love. That was a great song by the Beatles. Good message. The only problem is they didn't understand the true source of love. We do. God is the source. If you say all you need is agape, then we could probably go with that. They didn't know about agape, but we do, because God has made it known to us. And what they're, the point that John is trying to make is the way people in this world come into contact with and experience that agape love of God is through his people. That's how it's supposed to work. Now God can and does speak directly to people. People have gotten saved without ever being witnessed to. The Holy Spirit can come to anyone, anytime, any place, and lead them to Christ. They can be reading the Bible. God will speak to them th through the Bible. They'll get saved. But here's the problem. After they get saved, they come into the church. But maybe they come into a church where there's little or no agape love flowing. And after a while, and I've seen this through the years, folks. If you've ever wondered why some of the people that you've known have drifted away. Maybe they're no longer in church. Maybe they're no longer following God. Because week after week, month after month, year after year, they came into a church where there was no agape. And they began to believe that the whole thing was a lie. It was a fake if it's real, where is it? Because I don't see it in the people around me. And that's what John's getting at here, folks. If we love one another, God abides or lives in us. The evidence that those who claim to know the one true God really know Him is that they love their fellow believers. Now, many people from many walks of life with many different beliefs or lack thereof show some evidence of love to one degree or another. We talked about this, I think, a couple of weeks ago. The four Greek words, eros, sexual love, not even used in the Christian Greek scriptures. Storge, love between family members, which unless something's been perverted or distorted, that's just normal. 
When you give birth to someone, there's a love relationship that exists. Even in the animal kingdom. That's storge, love between family members. Philia or phileo, love between friends, brotherly love. All good. But the epitome, the apex is agape, principled love, unconditional love. And only when God and his agape love enter the equation, along with faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior of our souls, do all the pieces of the puzzle fit together properly. Many years ago, I heard a teaching that has always stuck with me, and it's about relationships. How deep you can go in a relationship. You can only get the farthest you can ever hope to get without Christ is level three. Phileo, philia, brotherly love. You could have eros, that's easy. That's all over the place. You can have storge, family, familial love. You can have phileo, Philadelphia, brotherly love, but without Christ, there can never be any agape. And folks, agape is the whole ball game. It's only when you get to that level that you can truly have a meaningful, deep, lasting relationship with God or another human being. And it will completely alter the way we live, the way we think, the way we act. The love of God has never turned anyone away from Him. Think about that. But the lack of true agape love from his kids has turned untold scores of men and women from following after the God who loves them. We often hear about the Crusades. We hear about the Spanish Inquisition and various times throughout human history when those who claimed to be followers of Christ did anything except exhibit agape love. There's another expression I learned many years ago. Might have been Josh McDowell, I can't remember now, but it goes like this. For some people, you are the only Bible they will ever read. If they're not willing to pick up a Bible, read a Bible, you might be the only Bible they will ever read. So my last question this morning, a challenge to each and every one of us, how good is your translation? Let's pray. Father God, we need your help because you've set a pretty high standard for us that we're to love one another as Christ loved us, Lord, and that's something we cannot do without your help. We cannot agape one another without your agape living inside of us and growing inside of us because as we have learned from your scriptures, Love, agape love, is the fruit of the Spirit. If we're not filled with the Spirit, then we can never bear that fruit. So, Father, we ask this morning, Lord, we need a daily renewal. Help us to come to you daily, to be renewed, to be refreshed. As we sing that song, Created me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Father, help us to pray that prayer or something like that every day. And Lord, for those here this morning who are really feeling maybe deficient, depleted in the area of agape, Lord, that maybe they'll come forward for prayer today and seek a renewal 
a refreshing in their own hearts and lives. We all need that, Father. We pray as um, the group leads us in a closing song that we will reach out to you, allow you to minister to us, and fill us afresh and anew with that agape love. Lord, that's our highest calling in Christ. Help us to remember that and to pursue that diligently. Father, as we worship you now, we pray that you would draw people by your Spirit who need prayer. Maybe some would like to be prayed for for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Maybe someone would even like to pray for salvation. Whatever it is, Father, we ask that you would just pour out your Holy Spirit in these closing moments. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.